0: Well. Okay, We're going to build a castle. So hey guys, we're we're basically in a current very of the ancient sites. You just came from Capernaum uh, and one said the places where we just moved from the town the of Jesus. So what's the, uh, what's the difference? First, I mean, uh, it's very interesting. Whenever we look for remnants, like archaeological remnants of the time of Christ, it always goes back to Jewish towns, Jewish villages, Jewish places because... Uh, well, we have to keep in mind, Jews was born, raised, and died So Something we find actually related, related to <coughs> Jewish towns and there, therefore, in a way, Jewish artifacts. Um, as I said, I mean, the site started to be excavated back in 1971, not exactly here. A bit farther down by the sea, we found actually remnants of probably small sort of a court that was here, uh, supporting transportation along the lake uh, of different periods of times, including 2,000 years ago. By the way, uh, 800 years ago, under the Cruzader period, one of the major industries around here, around the Crusaders was the sugar uh, industry. They actually, are the only period of time where they grew sugar canes and actually processed all the canes into like sugar to be exported back to Europe. That was the major income source for the Crusaders and it's been used for that as well from the 12th century. But then the place has been, in a way, almost like a bandit for many, many years, till uh, the beginning of the 21st century. Um, the, the land itself is owned by the Catholic Church uh, of Mexico. Sure. And they wanted to build a meditation center, which is now built by the, by the water, and a hotel. And, uh, and as I told you before, if you want to build something in Israel, you need to actually do some uh, first uh, survey to see whether there is anything underneath and right away they bumped into some major kind of archaeological artifacts they had to freeze everything for a long time and basically for about 20 years they ran run on and off major excavations of and eventually actually uh really discovered uh magdala the center of magdala of the time kind of christ of the first century AD. Uh, one of the first things to bump into That's actually what caused the really freezing of the project for about 20 years what was what we we're going to see in a second, which is right in front of us, and this is a synagogue of the first century. And we're going to talk about the uniqueness of synagogues of that period of time as we, as we, as we move on, but it's, I can tell you that this is actually one out of eight synagogues that we know of, of that period of time. There are only eight of them of the first century. Most of the synagogues we have would started to, I mean, started to be built somewhere in the third century and on. So this is very, very unique. And this is unlike a perineum, that we have, the fifth-century synagogue on top of it, and we assume that was underneath. Here we have it all exposed. So that's one of the first things to bump into, was like a mosaic floor, and suddenly they, so everything had to stop. And from there, it started to really take uh, out the city. And uh, we can see the city was uh, a major city, a very prosperous city, major industries that we're going to actually try and figure out what was the major industry of, the, of, of, uh, of Magdala? The original name of it was Trachai. And um, later on, the Romans actually named it Nuna <coughs> Magdala. Migdal in Hebrew is a tower. Nunia, such as Trachai in, in, uh, in Greek, it means saltening fish. Saltening fish, Trachai. Uh, nunia is fish, tower of the fish. Actually, everything here related to the fish and for the fishing, but it's not only fishing, it's salt fish. And we'll talk about it uh, later on. Anyway, in the heart of this synagogue, this stone was actually found, which got the name the Magdala stone. It means it's a, a one-in-a-kind. This is not the original. It's a replica, but I mean, uh, still nice enough. And this was found in the center of the synagogue. You can see there is another replica where it was really found. we are going to see it uh, as we walk around the synagogue. And it's called the Magdala stone. It was placed in the center of the synagogue. And they used to place or to actually lay down the scrolls in order to actually read on it. That's in a way the table you read the scrolls from. If you look carefully, you can see there is almost like a place to really place those uh, like the scrolls themselves when you fold and unfold it to actually stabilize it. And then you can see there are a lot of decorations all around. Uh, according to archaeology, those uh, kind of uh, decorations that have been chisted and engraved into the rock uh, symbolize the temple in Jerusalem. Very interesting because this is why the temple is still standing, so maybe the one who designed it had really seen the temple. And all of those kind of symbols have been made uh, from a first-hand person who really saw the temple, not from a, not, not from like a retrospective as we normally have. And probably this is the most important element we have within this stone, which is the seven branches menorah, as we know from the temple. But look at the base of it, it stands on three legs, as a versus to what we normally have in mind, That's very, uh, I think it's a hexagon, uh, base of the menorah, hexagon, and on top of it there is like a three-corner uh, uh, circle, and then it's, it's actually center of it, What we know from the Titus Arch in Rome, these are the two versions of menorahs, but if this was done at the time of the temple, and maybe the one who actually designed it had really seen the menorah at the temple, or at least from that period of time, maybe that's, that's the more authentic one, and maybe that was the shape of the menorah at the temple, unlike the one we see in Rome. Uh, anyway we've not found the original menorah, if you uh, get to find it you're going to be among the f- most important and famous people in the world. Uh, some assumptions, one maybe it's uh, somewhere hidden in the basements of the Vatican, the other one is, might be hidden underneath of the Temple Mount, near the foundation stone and therefore it's never been allowed to excavate and to actually search for it. These are the two assumptions we have, but we don't know. Uh, this is probably one of the oldest engraved menorahs We've ever found, I mean, in the country at all. But, but not that one. Hmm? But not that one. That's a replica. It's a replica. You don't live. Uh <laughs> By the way, the original one just we came back from an uh, exhibition somewhere overseas. Okay. That um, I don't know where they place it now, but uh, yeah, ma- maybe it's in the hotel lobby. I mean, sometimes they just place it over there. But it's really very well kept. It's. Uh, Pope Church Danville. <laughs> <laughs> next to the menorah you can see the two jars. What do you think the jars they actually care. have been used for if they're next to the menorah? <laughs> oil. oil. Oil, right? Oil. Oil. Olive oil. Uh, you know, uh, pop the, uh, the olives in this whole process of crushing. The olives together with the seeds, with the pits, with the skin and everything, and the first oil that comes out of that first crashing, it's not even pressing, it's crashing, that's the oil to be used to light the menorah at the temple. So not from the Galilee that's too far, but Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, on the farmland, the first, what we call extra virgin olive oil, would be handed over to the temple in order to light the menorah. Uh, I guess you're all familiar with the holiday of Hanukkah, the Jews like the Hanukiah, which is the nine branches menorah, candelabra. It's not the seven branches. What's the whole story? Those cans of oil had to be sealed. This is like the extra virgin olive oil. It's very, very unique, very expensive. All of those cans had to be sealed in order to be used. And after the temple was purified by the Maccabees, after the defeat of the Greeks, they found only one of those jars been completely sealed mm-hmm. and this was supposed to be enough for one day only and of course the miracle that one jar has actually been enough for eight days why we needed another seven days Extra seven days that's the time that it took to make olive oil so it needed some time to make new olive oil to be again pure for for lighting the menorah so these are the two jars and that's basically depict that area of the temple where the menorah was, and uh, like in the menorah, seven branches menorah. Uh, you can see on both sides oil lamps. Then you have those. As you walk around, you'll be able to see the kind of arches, which, uh, if you, rem- we we'll talk about it in Jerusalem, but on top of the temple, there was the royal portico with the arches. Uh, so that's probably depicted out those arches. Left Rosetta, which was very very common at the time. Uh, in, in Jewish architecture, and then you have, on that side, the coins of half a shekel, the two sides of the, sh- of the half a shekel coin. What was the half a shekel coin used for? Taxes, right? Before you got into, I mean, on the pilgrimage holidays, before you got into the temple, you had to actually pay the tax, which was half a shekel. So all of those kind of uh, things, in a way, civilized the temple, and those who lived here, maybe, never had the chance to go to Jerusalem. If they had a the chance, maybe it was a once in a lifetime experience for them. A synagogue, a house of assembly, was the place where they could really gather and read from the scrolls. And this stone is actually that, almost like a table where they place those scrolls and actually open the scrolls in order to read uh, from the scrolls as we do up to today, by the way, every weekend, every Saturday, every Sabbath. The entire five books of Moses are divided into 52 portions for the 15, two weeks of the year and every sabbath actually we actually read one of those portions uh last saturday yesterday it's the book of exodus portion named go which actually deals with the uh the flags in egypt and uh, so uh that was really like now we're getting to the exodus the story of the exodus um so this is really like right now um so this is actually the probably the most famous kind of find of Madbala, but it's all related to what you're going to see here, which as I said, it's the the most authentic kind of site you can have. You know, normally I divide the sites into A, B, and C. Uh, A would be authentic, B would be between, means traditions that have some credibility based on some archaeological verifications, but it's not Mm -hmm. 100%. Then you have C, which are all traditions, mostly started by the Byzantine and during the Byzantine period, which have, we, not, they, they don't have any archaeological verifications to actually prove their location of those sites. This is a pure <laughs> A site, the way I describe it, A, B, and C. And uh, since they open it to the public, it's like almost like a must site on, on the list. Bob uh, disagrees with me uh, because this is the, really the, be- the best it can be it goes to the time of the so if you want to take a look at take of piece, you can continue asking go to one of the peace Hey, quick question. I heard you'd say that some some would never in their lifetime be able to go to the temple. I thought it was incumbent upon the family was, to go no, once was, a year. There is an obligation, uh-huh. mandatory, to go three times a year on the three pilgrimage holidays. Mm-hmm. Let's say you live in Nazareth a town, uh, a small village in the Galilee, even live in Capernaum. Yeah. And you're committed to go three times a a year. How long would it take you to get from here to Jerusalem? A month? A week, week, ten days. And then you stay for another ten days, because the holiday is about a week, and then you stay a day before, two days after, and to commute back another ten days. That's a month. Yeah. How many people can afford themselves to be away from home for three months? And on top of it, between Passover, you know, what the pilgrimage holidays are Passover, right. Shavuot, which is actually Pentecost, mm-hmm. and Sukkot, the holiday of the tabernacle. Tabernacles. So between Passover and Shavuot and Pentecost, how many days do we have? Uh, do what, is what is Pentecost? Pentecost 50, 50. Fifty. The disciples return back to Jerusalem on Pentecost. Kaust is the sacrifice. The sacrifice of the 50th day, which is the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. Uh-huh. they were committed to come to make the, the animal sacrifice at the temple. That's that's the holiday of the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and it's the holiday of the first harvest. There's exactly seven weeks between Passover and Shavuot. The 50th day would be the day of the sacrifice. If you finish Passover in Jerusalem, by the time you get back home, you already need to get back. That's not really doable. Yeah. So those who live near Jerusalem and around Jerusalem could have really commuted Jerusalem three times in a year. But uh, if you live in the, in the periphery, just if you privilege one, you would do it once in a lifetime. Uh, three times in your lifetime. Um, for most people, it, it, it's been impossible to wow. get to Jerusalem. it's not feasible, really. So when you do it once in a lifetime, yeah. oh, you want to do it twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about it in Jerusalem. That's <laughs> great. But, it's, but then you can read from the school. Yeah. Thank you.